So wait, is that like a th- is like is Skinnamarink a thing in the movie at all? Like I know obviously yeah, like a voice. Okay, the, you can see it. You can hear the voice in the trailer. Okay, in the trailer for the movie, like it's like a bunch of kids wandering around, and then eventually a voice. You'll hear the end of the trailer is like a voice going like "Come upstairs" or something. So like that's kind of okay. There's definitely like something. That's not a huge spoiler to say that. I like, assume it's, it's, not. It's yes. not just like spooky house and weird no doors. There's, there is indeed a Skinnamarink. There's there's something in the house. I think it wouldn't hit as hard because I've had time away from it, and uh-huh. uh, I've had time to, to just find it funny. Some of it now, not, yeah. not like to be to like make jokes about skinnamarinks in the same way that like, oh, are you is, is she one of those malignants? I will like if I t- like if I turn a light off prematurely. Sometimes you're like, oh, that's how you get skinnamarinks. <laughs> we doing that. <laughs> Welcome to Why Did We Watch This, the podcast with three friends. What a troubled movie. Talk about what they like, what they didn't like, and how they would fix it. Trumps. I'm how are you, Ricky? How are you? I'm doing Boris Karloff. Oh. It's, it's anti-pasto. <laughs> sound like... It does sound like Ringo Starr. I think, it, I think it depends where you go up when you're talking. Your highs and lows in your voices. I am Brendan, love song for a Frankenstein Drischler. Uh, I'm Chris. Mm. <laughs> That's it. That was it. <laughs> and I am Lee. It need not happen. <laughs> and the movie we'll be discussing this episode, our Halloween spooktacular, is Mary Shelley's Frank. Frankenstein from 1994, <laughs> directed by Kenneth Branagh, Can he be starring again? Kenneth Branagh, <laughs> and Robert De Niro, Helena Bonham Carter, Tom Hulse, Ian Holm, Aidan Quinn, and John Cleese, a terrifying cast of actors. <laughs> That's about it. That's just mostly those guys. Yeah, 1994, directed by Kenny Branagh. Uh, we'll go into that a little bit, but the thing to cover, I think, first of all, first of all, guys, it's 100 episodes. This is our 100th Woo, episode. Happy 100! We're talking about Frankenstein for Which, our 100th episode. It does feel nicely bookended with how I believe it was season one. We, we talked Dracula, about Drac- yeah. Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah. Which I think was maybe intended to be... These were intended to be companions. I do not feel that they are successful in being companions. Pieces, rather. Yeah. Apparently, and we'll cover this later, Coppola wanted to do a whole slew of prestige horror-lit adaptations that just kind of petered off after this. But (laughs) anyway... Naturally, as Can't is our want, we needed to have a drink for this. So the drink that we made is called a lightning bolt. It's two ounces of vodka, one ounce of sour lime simple syrup, six ounces of sparkling yuzu juice, and mint. So first of all, the uh, sour lime simple syrup was pretty simple. It just juiced a lime and some zest, mixed it with one quarter cup water, one quarter cup sugar, and also about a quarter teaspoon of citric acid to really make it nice and sour. Heat that up in a pot, obviously let it cool down. Then in a cocktail shaker, muddle mint with vodka and the lime simple, shake it with ice and strain it into a glass over more ice, then top with sparkling yuzu. And that's your lightning bolt, baby! It was really, really tasty. It was. Um, it, was it was sour, it was which sour. I was glad. I feel like I could have probably made it a little more sour than I initially did, but I was worried that our tongues would rot. Because <laughs> I know that citric acid is some very potent shit, and you don't want to just kind of throw it willy-nilly 
into anything. I, ba- I basically, my diet is probably 10% sour scummies, so... <laughs> I could have gone bigger. So yeah, actually, more. your food pyramid is like, listen, I got I got more calories of sour gummies to take in today. Could have <laughs> yeah, given me more citric I, acid. I um, I may have I, I may have just like burned off several of my taste buds. So <laughs> you just can't taste it. Uh, you just gotta keep swinging bigger to get that yeah, eye. It, it was delicious. I do also think it would, as, as much as it was delicious on this... Uh, Rainy yet still weirdly humid slash warm October day. Uh, this would be great in the summer. No, it would be. It, it, I mean, it's it's you know it's a citric drink, so obviously the summer is and kind like, of a prime time for that sort of the thing. The mint, the lime, yeah, it all just comes true. together really nicely. That's true. The initial thought that I was kind of having for like what we should do for drinks, I was thinking about how when we did Dracula, it was a red drink and we threw plastic vampire fangs, in it. Yeah. <laughs> and I was kind of thinking that if what if we had something green in a mason jar and we attached like two Rolos to the bottom of it to look like bolts, <laughs> and like the problem is that you can't really like green drinks are impossible to do well because it's basically mm-hmm. like you're doing matcha or you're doing midori two things that or i cannot abide yeah or food coloring that's true as well but if you had um yellow you gotta watch out for that when you add food color yeah to that's like right already yellow beverage yeah it'll fuck with it like i guess maybe we could have put it in like a, a human shaped trough for us to drink it out of <laughs> we could have just put like um like, mm, amniotic fluid <laughs> oh, we could have covered chris in it and just, I'll just slurped let, it up oh, yeah. j- just let me slide around yeah, on the floor I should, I should also mention that as befitting the halloween theme we're of course all wearing our costumes for this yeah uh chris is dressed as helena bottom carter naturally he's got the scars he shaved his yeah. head lee's dressed as uh, aiden quinn <laughs> she's got the got the beard. yeah lots of fierce glares determined have, glances she's yeah. put in blue colored contacts <laughs> i already have blue eyes yeah She's no, just like even bluer. Yeah, like icy as an Arctic fox. Yeah, yeah. And I, of course, am dressed as the monster, which means that I'm completely naked and covered in goo. <laughs> covered in amniotic. Yep. Yeah. Now, who wants to help me stand up? Yeah. Why did we'll get into it? But why did that go on for That's so such a long? long. <laughs> And surely, if you had changed the scoring to that, it would be a comedy. And just, just there's there's so many cuts. To it's still happening that right. it feels like it was made to be comedy, but that can't possibly. Well, yeah, because it keeps like hard cutting. <laughs> right, no, it's because it's yeah, because it's not like it's cutting to like Oops. a different angle. It's yeah. cutting to like another angle, being like blurp and like falling down. Yeah, it's it's cutting as if time has passed. Yeah, yes. <laughs> so you have to actually even do this for like yeah. ten minutes. It's nuts. Or three hours. What do we yeah. know? Yeah. Anyway, anyway, so we'll we'll get into that in a moment. Uh, anything else to say on the drink? Anyone? Uh, it was great. It was, it would was do nice. again. Yeah. Similar yeah. to Lee's comment, if a bartender served me this, I would not be mad. I would not throw it in their face. Yeah. <laughs> and I have. Yes. <laughs> I wouldn't reach in and take their heart out and yeah. say, uh, I told you, yeah. and I'm not out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Having covered that, uh, Lee, do you want to give us the synopsis of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein? Yeah. Here we go. It's a big, listen, it's a big wall of text. Please limit your interruptions or I fear I will lose my place <laughs> within it. Go for it. So here we go. We'll, do, we'll be good. In 1794, Captain Walton leads a troubled expedition to reach the North Pole. While their ship is trapped in the ice of the Arctic Sea, the crew hears a frightening noise and witnesses a mysterious figure killing their sled dogs before vanishing. The crew rescues a man, Victor Frankenstein, who had fallen in the Arctic waters. When Walton tells Victor of his determination to continue the expedition, Victor replies, Do you share my madness? And he proceeds to tell Walton of the crew and the crew of his life story, presented in flashback. Victor grows up in Geneva with his adopted sister, Elizabeth Lavenza, the love of his life. Before he leaves for the University of Ingolstadt, Victor's mother dies giving birth to his brother William. 
Devastated by her loss, Victor vows on his mother's grave that he will find a way to conquer death. Victor and his friend Henry Clairval study under uh, Schmiel Augustus Waldman, a professor whose notes contain information on how to create life. Waldman warns Victor not to use them lest he create an abomination. Uh, while performing vaccinations, Waldman is murdered by a patient who is later hanged in the village square. Using the killer's body, a leg from a fellow student who died of cholera and Waldman's brain, Victor builds a creature based on the professor's notes. He is so obsessed with his work that he drives Elizabeth away when she comes to take him away from Ingolstadt, which is being quarantined amid a cholera epidemic. Victor finally gives his creation life, but he is horrified by the creature's hideous appearance and tries to kill him. Not sure about that. He <laughs> doesn't try very hard. Uh, yeah, I don't yeah. think he tries to kill him. It seems pretty accidental. I think he presumes it's dead and yeah. then moves on with his life. Uh, frightened and confused, the creature steals Victor's coat and flees the laboratory. Why did I say it like that? The laboratory. Dexter? The creature finds shelter in a family's barn and stays there for months without their knowledge, gradually learning to read and speak by watching them. He attempts to earn their trust by anonymously bringing them food and eventually converses with the elderly blind patriarch after murdering an abusive debt collector. When the blind man's family returns, however, they are terrified of the creature and chase him away. The creature finds Victor's journal in his coat and learns of the circumstances of his creation. Upon returning to the farmhouse... He discovers the family has abandoned it, leaving him all alone once again. He burns down the farm and vows revenge on Victor for bringing him into a world that hates him. Victor returns to Geneva to to marry Elizabeth, only to find that his younger brother William has been murdered. The Frankenstein servant Justine is blamed for the crime and hanged, but Victor knows the creature is responsible. The creature abducts Victor and demands that he make a female companion for him, promising to leave his creator in peace in return. Victor begins gathering the tools he used to create life, but when the creature insists that he use Justine's body to make the companion, a disgusted Victor breaks his promise. The creature exacts his revenge on Victor's wedding night by breaking into Elizabeth's bridal suite and ripping her heart out. Uh, Desperate with grief, Victor races home to bring Elizabeth back to life. He stitches Elizabeth's head onto Justine's body and reanimates her as a disfigured, mindless shadow of her former self. The creature appears, demanding Elizabeth as his bride. Victor and the creature fight for Elizabeth's affections, but Elizabeth, horrified by her own reflection, commits suicide yeah, by no. setting herself on fire. Both Victor and the creature escape as the mansion burns down. The story returns to the Arctic. Victor tells Walton that he has been pursuing his creation for months to kill him. Soon after relating his story, Victor dies of pneumonia. Walton discovers the creature weeping over Victor's body, having lost the only family he has ever known. The crew prepares a funeral pyre, but the ceremony is interrupted when the ice around the ship cracks. Walton invites the creature to stay with the ship, but the creature insists on remaining with the pyre. He takes the torch and burns himself alive with Victor's body. Walton orders the ship to return home. That's it. The The end. end. Love song for a Frankenstein place over the end credits. Oh, you just Played on the recorder that he stole. <laughs> that would actually be great if the end credits music was just the monster playing like shitty recorders. Again, it's, it's, it's just that it was it's like, just the we, my heart will go on. Exactly. <laughs> played really badly. Like, blah, 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 blah. You know how you know how there's like the song that takes you into the credits, and then at a certain yeah. point it kicks over to a different song for the rest of the credits. Yeah. I think the song it kicks over to should be Monster Fuck. <laughs> Actually, honest to God, if the end credits song, yeah, if it was just Robert De Niro singing Monster Bash, it would probably be worth it. It was a fuck. It was a monster fuck. Those monsters sucked and fucked. (laughs) 
All right, so we'll go through the cast real quick. Robert De Niro, who is top billed in this movie, is the creation, is what he is referred to specifically, not the monster. Kenny B was very insistent upon this, who starts off as a guy who kills John Cleese and then is brought back to life as the creation. Kenneth Branagh is Victor Frankenstein. Tom Hulse is Henry Clairval. Helena Bonham Carter is Elizabeth. Ian Holm is Victor Frankenstein's father, Baron Alphonse Frankenstein. I don't know if we ever heard that. Yep. Here's my thing. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> Alphonse is a silly this name. This is going away from cast. Okay. We talked about the ripping the heart out and how he needs to get a new body. Yeah. But he put a new brain in Robert De Niro's head. Right. right. Wouldn't it be just as easy to put the to heart put back heart. in the body? I concur. <laughs> okay. This movie has some very interesting ideas about what can and cannot easily especially, be done. Especially yeah. since you couldn't just pop the brain inside the cavity and it just... Yeah, it just sloops into place. And just, like, it connects to the spinal column. Yes. It's like surgery simulator. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just slap it in. Yeah. It just snaps it. You just, like, pop the top of the skull <laughs> back on. You're good. Ian Holm is the dad. John Cleese is Professor Waldman. Aiden Quinn is Captain Walton. And I, I think that's pretty much about yeah. it. We're getting into Who the weeds here. Yeah. Apparently Hugh Bonville from Downton Abbey yeah, is one of the students, he is. which I did not at all. Paul recognized him. I did not. Oh, interesting. All right. But there we are. So that is uh, that is the cast and the synopsis. Thank you, Lee, for reading that. Uh, we'll start briefly here with a little bit of uh, backstories. There's a YouTube video that I had seen like years ago, and I rewatched it then uh, shortly before this just to kind of remind me of where we were at this time. So, Chris, like you had said earlier, this was a movie that came out after um, Bram Stoker's Dracula, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, so it's of that same time period. So the video that I'm mentioning, it's uh, by Patrick H. Williams on YouTube, which covers, yeah, which covers a lot of, it basically covers, like, Universal's attempts to make more monster movies, or just attempts to bring monsters back, yeah, into the popular consciousness in the way that they were in, like, the 40s up until the 50s. So you had things like Silence of the Lambs, an interview with the vampire, and Hollywood's love of big, expensive period pieces leading to this, like, short period in movie history. He posits kind of that Silence of the Lambs and Jaws are things that led to horror being treated more respectedly, which I don't know if I entirely agree with because I don't really consider either of those movies to be horror movies so much as they are, like, thrillers or suspenseful movies. Yeah, I mean, Silence of the Lambs certainly is horrifying at times, but I don't... It's all, it's like a very grand realistic I still don't understand Jaws. I don't understand why. I don't understand why. Well, he's a shark, you see. Shark. I I don't understand why it's scary. I don't understand why. I was scared of it as a kid. It's a lot of it's because it's a lot of like effective tension. Mostly is what it is. There is that, but I think it's easiest to not go in the ocean. Well, yes, but I think the idea. They want to. Right. The the premise is that they're a seaside town and they need to have tourist money. Ergo, people must be able to go into the ocean. I mean, I agree with you. So, like, I agree. Yeah, yeah. In a logical sense, if you were afraid of Jaws. Simply just don't go into the water. Exactly. That's quite that's quite easy, and I agree with you there. The fact of the matter is, it's more of like a citywide concern. But also, it also just seems like if you really needed to take care of a shark, you didn't have to go out in a shitty dinky fishing boat. Like it, it, it like it's still just this. Anyway, I mean, I assume a lot of it is just that they don't have like it's not that wealthy. I of a feel town. similarly about Frankenstein in this movie, where they're like. He's unkillable. I'm like, just get, get. Have you tried shooting guys, him? Eight yeah. guys with guns. Yeah. He's still one large man. Yeah. Just, Have you tried setting him on fire? Have you yeah. tried any of these things? Works in the end. Just hit him, yeah. man. 
So anyway, this was sort of the idea of taking uh, respectable, well-known works of literature and turning them to expensive, lavish <coughs> productions that could nab a few Oscar noms. Because Lee, like you said, Merchant Ivory was mm-hmm. a huge thing at this point. So we were Which like... Which is very visibly an influence yeah, in this Yes, movie. very much so. It was just something that we were very kind of enamored with at that time period. We would take classic works of lit that everyone was kind of familiar with, put stars in them, make them very big and expensive. People would turn out to see them. Yeah. They would get Oscar nominations. Could, did, did, did you guys enjoy any of them? Because I find them very hard I to never, watch. honest to God, I don't Merchant think Ivory I... Merchant Ivory specifically? Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen any Merchant Ivory movies. I watched them when I was young and I didn't really get what was going on. I start, I tried to I watch A Room with a View like recently as a, as a, like a, you know, a 30-something. And I was like, I can't. I was like, I don't know if I just missed the boat on the time. Uh, I was like, maybe. We were like acceptable. Like we're like, okay, this is an acceptable film. But I was right. like, I can't watch. This is like, I can't relate to this. It's like so distant from like grounded emotions. Yeah. It's like, I mean, there is certainly, a, they are very florid yeah. movies. Florid these things. Again, having not really seen any of them, I can't say how I feel. I know that that's not necessarily something that I always respond to. Like, I watched it. I watched a movie that I was like, oh, I, yeah, I'm hoping for, like, a sort of, you know, interesting sort of romantic kind of movie. But it's not. It's just kind of goofy. Because it's just like, <laughs> and like, Whoa! like, running around and saying four And there's a lot of swooning, right? Yeah. That's that's kind of why I never really tried those bodice things. Bodice rippers? Did you call them that? Yeah, I always I always associate bodice rippers with almost more of that's more sultry. This I like, was thinking like, it's like that genre that moms read from yes. libraries. Oh, just like sex. There is right. a scene in Room of the View where it's like a bunch of the guys go to like let's go bathe in the pond, and then and then it is like they all take their shirts off uh-huh. and they're pinned they one of the water, like, but it's like hubba. it's not played for like. <laughs> sexy times you know what I mean it's just like it's like so free boys having fun it's bucolic I was thinking also the um what what is it Pride and Prejudice with Colin Firth where he's like coming out of the water like shirtless or not shirtless but he's like soaking wet no it was that's what I'm saying like because I feel like they they were sexual but there was like a tasteful sex thing you know it wasn't like Aggressive or it's like, visual. That's what it, in like Much Ado the opening. It's very similar. Right. Yeah. We're no. All, I mean, yeah. We're all, we're all gonna have a big sexy party later, so let's all get clean. Right. Right. Know, right. Let's all like shelves. have a mildly arousing cleanup sequence prior to, which again, of course, ties back into Kenneth Branagh, which yes. we'll get to. Okay. Me. Uh, so you know these productions, they were big and they were expensive looking, and they like kind of emphasized fidelity to the source material as a thing. If you see this movie, it's almost as classy as reading the book. Right. 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 Well, and it's I think there's it's it's. A specific it like, it's a specific kind of prestige where you're like it's not just your average garbage movie right this is based on right this has credentials this is based sir. on the works of E.M. Forrester don't you know right between, between reading the book and um, reading the watching the Roach Ivory film we're mm-hmm. just reading the great illustrated classic <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the pinnacle frankly <laughs> I do love did you, I had so many great illustrated when classics you were a kid, as a kid did you like me, did you think you were reading, reading the book? Yeah, oh, and you're yeah, basically yeah. like, oh, oh, yeah, like great expectations. Yeah, I fucking read great expectations. Yeah, like I, I thought I, I, when I was a kid, I was like, yeah, I read Moby Dick. Yeah, love it. No, yes, and then you like get, get older, and you like look through the book. You're like, oh, that was also <laughs> we've, we've cut some bits, haven't yeah, we? We've simplified was, things here. That was such a thing in the late '80s and early '90s too. Of you'd get the like abridged or Reader's Digest versions of classic works, right? Because it's like, who has time to read that much yeah, nowadays? Yeah. Just I, read, like, the Sparks Notes version. There basically. is something, like, kind of cute that I appreciate about Great Illustrated Classics. Let's try to get Baby interested in, like, yeah. some classic works of lit and see if it sticks. Uh, anyway, so Dracula, obviously. Dracula happens. Dracula is sort of a big, expensive, over-the-top, grandiose movie. Mm-hmm. It got Oscar noms. It was a huge hit. And so, like I had said previously, Coppola 
does this, everyone enjoys it, it makes money, it's well responded to. I enjoy it very much many years later. Yeah, I've come around on it. And so Coppola then is like, this is what I want to do. I want to do another, a couple of adaptations of classic sort of more horror type movies of this ilk. For whatever reason, he did not want to direct Frankenstein. I'm not sure what happened, but he decided not to direct it. He decided to produce it and hired both De Niro and Branagh to do them, to be in the movie. I think Branagh directing the movie came after the fact. Mm, he was originally hired as just an actor. So Frankenstein comes out. It was profitable, but it was nowhere near as profitable as Bram Stoker's Dracula was, which stopped Coppola from doing whatever his follow-up would have been. He said that he wanted to do a werewolf movie. I was going to say probably kind. Wolfman is next. Well, right? yeah, but Wolfman's weird because Wolfman's not like based on anything aside from the concept of a werewolf. Right. right? It's not like what there's if, like... Hey, what if werewolf? What if werewolf, right? It's not like there is a classic book we can turn back to and be like, oh, this is the definitive... It's, it's like how we talked about with Robin Hood where there's not really like a definitive right. Robin Hood. It's more like there are elements that we all know and Recognize. remember. Right. And we always incorporate them when we're adapting it. Wasn't there another attempt to do a like prestige Wolfman with Benicio Del Toro and Right, so that was around 2010, right. directed by a fucking, I can't remember his name, I'm blanking, the guy who did Jurassic Park 3, Rocketeer, Captain America, Joe, him. Joe, shit, I don't know. Which, by the way, on paper sounds great, but... Yeah, I've never actually seen that, I've heard it was not great, Same. but someday I would like to see it. Sony eventually ended up making a Wolf movie in 1994 with Mike Nichols, titled Wolf, starring Jack Nicholson and Michelle Pfeiffer. What? If... There's a reason you don't remember this movie. Like, no one remembers this movie existing, which is weird because it's not of this ilk. It's not like this sort of lavish period piece. It's more an adult drama in which one of the characters happens to be a wolf man, like, happens to realize that he is turning into a wolf. I have never seen it, but it was clearly, like, a horror-style movie aimed at an adult audience. I think I do remember Do you? There was also a movie called Mary Riley. Do anyone remember Mary Riley? Yes, which is a loose but not well-received adaptation of Turn of the Screw. Jekyll and Hyde. Oh. Mary Riley is Jekyll and Hyde, where it's Julia Roberts trying to be an Irish woman. Right. And oh, uh, John Malkovich as Dr. Jekyll. And the, the hook is basically like, it's Jekyll and Hyde from but the from perspective, perspective of, yeah, of her point. And this was a movie that was supposed to be directed by Tim Burton, and then Tim Burton didn't end up doing it because he got into a fight with Sony. And so this came out, no one liked it, no one remembers, no one cares about it. So anyways... That kind of put the kibosh on Sony's temporary infatuation with monster movies. <laughs> After they had two flops in a row, they were kind of like, well, we're, we're done with all of this here. Do you think that Julia Roberts's Irish accent was better or worse than Tom Cruise's Irish accent in Far and Away? Uh, I have seen a clip of Julia Roberts, and I would say it's a pretty neck-and-neck comparison <laughs> in terms of like what they're both... Honestly, it's one of those things where you're just like, you should just not do the accent. And like, <laughs> right. It's better that way. We won't care. Just stop trying. These movies, looking back, they're kind of like a weird anomaly in modern Hollywood. These big-budget auteur-style movies aimed at adults with sort of a prestige horror background to it. Honestly, I would be down for that happening right I would too because like when you think about it now the next wave of monster movies that we got was The Mummy Mm -hmm. which Which like I like The Mummy but The Mummy is more of an action adventure style movie it's much harder right it's not really very scary and that's similar to when that Wolfman movie that you mentioned came out as well where you know it just kind of didn't take with audiences and then after that Universal tried to do their whole dark universe thing which do you remember the midpoint before then what when they did Van Helsing 
Well, Van Helsing was at the same time as The Mummy, kind of. But yeah, so then obviously, like we said, also the whole Dark Universe thing at Universal never really took off. Mm -hmm. And that's where we are now. So those are kind of the waves. And that kind of places, or rather shows you where this movie is in terms of all of this coming out and where Hollywood was at the time. And why someone would take Frankenstein and think, hey, what if Kenneth Branagh starred in and directed this? So for me, if this had gone in more of a direction like Bram Stoker's Dracula, which I maintain that whether or not you, you like it or dislike it, and I think those are both completely valid reactions to have, it at least is memorable, and it, it's it's over the top in a way that is, for me, very fun to watch. There's things to look at and enjoy and take in. There's a zaniness to it. I think the cultural impact is at least fairly significant. That vampire butt hair yeah. has been referenced in so many things. I mean, I mostly remember the from Simpsons. The Simpsons. I was going to say The Simpsons is what I remembered from most, where Mr. Burns is a vampire. Um, but then, like, I kind of feel like this is the drippier, sleepier cousin. Right, yeah, like, this is, it's like the less effective stillborn yeah. <laughs> version of it's, that sort it's, of movie. It's desaturated both in its light and color, but also just in its mood. Right. I feel like the, the moments that I that stand out the most for me in this movie are the ones where it takes big swings. Mm -hmm. And so it almost makes the 95% of the rest of the movie feel even more turgid and right. uninteresting when you get back to just doing kind of a straightforward style Merchant Ivory vibes. People in fancy dresses hopping in circles around a ballroom Going, kind of thing. <laughs> right. All that bullshit. Pretty different from uh, pounding madly on guys' bloody chests and then screaming, <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, you didn't have to die. No I, one should have to die. No one will ever die again. This, that definitely makes sense. Yeah, this is my backstory. Um, Mommy, why did you die? I refuse to look at this as sort of anything except like an adaptation of the Frankenstein mm. a novel. And it's trying very hard to almost be a it, it, it pulls away from some of the more fantastical elements, seemingly in an effort to be like a straight period piece. Yeah, well, I'm saying, like, I don't want to look at it as, like, a, a companion piece to another movie that came mm -hmm. out at the same time. I don't want to look at it as, like, uh, I don't really want to look at it as, like, continuing this virtual trend. trend. I want yeah. to just look at it in isolation mm -hmm. and judge it on that merit. And all of those merits... It doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. no. No, I, I think that is one, a perfectly fine angle to take and to yeah. write in like, terms of it like, not working. I don't think, I mean, I, 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 I've watched, again, I've talked about Watchmark and Ivory films. I also think they don't, they don't necessarily do it for me in terms of adapting the literature that they're adapting mm -hmm. a lot of the time. Like, it's maybe a stylistic thing, but I prefer what we do now. Maybe it's generational. Maybe mm -hmm. it's like the way people react to or, or think of this sort of literature mm -hmm. is different. Yeah, I don't I don't like the Merchant Ivory vibe. I, frankly, I've not read the book Frankenstein. Frankenstein I, huh? You said frankly, I said Frankenstein. Oh, or Frankly's Monster. <laughs> it's actually, actually to be pedantic, Frankly's monster. Dr. Frankenstein. Yes. Um, but yeah, it's, the, the novel is maybe something I'm not, I wouldn't hugely be into as well, but mm -hmm. I would at least like, there'd be elements in there I think I could get behind. What if we got you the great illustrated classics, Frankenstein? Yeah. It'd be the whole <laughs> double A plus two thumbs up. Yeah. Lots of nice drawings nice, on every other nice, page. Nice pictures. <laughs> um, but no, I don't, what I don't, yeah, there's a lot to not like about this movie. Even if you divorce it from the time, place, and circumstance. Yeah, I, I would say that, um, I guess, sort of continuing what you said with Merchant Ivory, is maybe, 
again, having not really seen them, but maybe something that I respond to more is rather than having this sort of reverential approach to directing a movie like that, I kind of prefer more someone to come in with a vision and take a big yeah. swing. So like the other thing I was thinking of, it's not really similar to this in most respects, but the Greta Gerwig Little Women. Mm-hmm. How like I really like that movie and I think a lot of it is because Greta Gerwig had sort of like a take on it. And it wasn't just let's make a very expensive, very pretty looking adaptation cast. of this. Right. I, I think I have a way to tell this story that has not been done before and will make it relevant and interesting to people. And she was correct. She did. And it was great. And so I think kind of that's what I react more. It feels more like in this version, Kenneth Branagh was a little too reverential or timid or yeah, safe. safe, whatever you want to call it, to kind of make it stand out in that sense. My, my instinct, and I, I feel the same way about Shakespeare or uh, Robin Hood or King Arthur or just any story that is very well known and very well trod, even if we don't, even if someone couldn't tell you what was in the book Frankenstein, it's a recognizable, general in general strokes, story, characters, everything. So I feel like, why even bother if you're not going to come in with a wild new take? Because, yeah, or at least, right. well, at least a take. Yeah. An angle. Yeah. Somewhere. Yeah. I, I don't know what Kenneth brought up. I, I don't know. Like, like again, if I had read the novel, I would probably have come out with something that um, stuck with me. Like, one idea or one part of it. And I would have at least have emphasize that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I don't know what Kenneth Branagh lightning. responded to lightning responded yeah. to. he responded to lightning <laughs> yeah, he, he did he did he love did his lightning he baby loves lightning. his electricity <laughs> zip zip zap lightning and getting the chest up. indeed <laughs> yeah, he responded to that and he responded ah, to showing off his chest my torso is so yeah. warm Let's, let us cast off before we go too much <laughs> yeah before we wade too much into all of that I just want to comment real quick on the source material so mm. just to establish this Lee you said you have not read it I read this in middle school or eighth grade or something. Chris, you have read it and you also seem to remember it better than I do. Lee and I both just kind of glanced on Wikipedia to get an idea for what happened in the story. I read it first in middle school and then I read it again when I was an adult. And I was like, I still like this. I mean, I I, I had different feelings about it somewhat because I think I understood it a little more. But I really... I do like this book. I did have to go back to Wikipedia to kind of look up the synopsis to remember like a couple details, but I was I was mostly right with it. I don't I don't think I've really read like a full epistolar novel, and I don't think I would enjoy it. They're boring. Epistolary novels yeah. are boring. I do think like there's a reason why we don't really do them that much anymore. I, if you have a good reason to write one in that yeah. format, then you can do it and do it well. But it feels a lot of the times like it's just simply a style of storytelling that we kind of abandoned. There's been occasional times within the past ten to twenty years where they've tried to modernize the Episcopal story where it's like here's the email exchange here's the text message log isn't it like being in a video game and picking up all the lore (laughs) and trying to figure out having to read everyone's letters maybe that's where the Episcopal novel went into it's moved to video games to to walking simulators (laughs) because like is it like that or is it as hard to figure out what's going on to, like chronologically. So and, like... I think you think about it like this. The epistolatory novel is there as a way of telling you stories in a, in, in a way that felt naturalistic for the time. I think it was considered to be a more graceful way to tell a story than just straight exposition because within the context of a letter you probably are having to be like, oh, I gotta tell you everything that happened up until right. this point. So it makes, it makes what would otherwise feel like incredibly clunky exposition at least 
I think at that time feel, feel natural, natural, yeah. more smooth. But I think nowadays now. it yeah. feels fucking labored. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I would also say I wonder if part of it is kind of the idea that it lends an air of believability to your mm-hmm. story because if the, if it's the supposed, found footage, right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's literally, like, right. it's literally like it's literally like I found all these letters in a in a box when I moved into this house. Let me publish them and we'll see this crazy tale that happened. And it's yeah. true because they were all letters that someone sent, which. I, feels like that might be part of it, too. I think in a world where we have film, an epistolatory novel feels very inert. Right. I mean, I would also argue that <laughs> this mo- this adaptation specifically kind of shows the pitfalls of adapting something that's like that. Yes. Because, like, this movie does feel so much like there are chunks of it. You yeah. have the framing device. You have the first part of Frankenstein. You spend time with the creation. And then you dip back into Frankenstein. And then you go back to the framing device. Which, I would say in general, with, with a handful of very identifiable departures, this movie is broadly pretty faithful to the book. Right. My understanding is that the broad strokes are pretty much all there. Yes. There are minor details that they did. The, the biggest change seems to be the making Elizabeth into the bride, which yes. does not at all happen. And that the, the body material. that he was initially going to use to make a mate for the monster was Justine. Was Justine. Right, which is not a thing. Nor is it a thing that Justine was into him in the book. I mean, they... they no, I don't think they added anything that was, like, completely out of line per se. It just, like, some things didn't necessarily feel that needed. No, I mean, I think some of... I think the addition of making Elizabeth the bride sort of type character yes. is an interesting choice. And I think that one kind of works for me. We talked about also the idea that um, this movie tries to kind of give Victor more of a explanation or backstory. Which I appreciate. I, it's I, not successful. See, that's what I, said. Like, I appreciate the attempt... To do that. Right. But I think also just in the book, he's a little weirdo who loves science and wants to keep seeing what science is. And he can just do. goes too far. And I think that's fine. Honestly, I think that's fine as it is. You don't need, you know, again, like I said when we were watching it, it feels so much like a play because you have these scenes where Victor's kind of monologuing <laughs> what he would be thinking, where, you know, he's standing on his mother's grave and being like, no one ever has to die, mother. Right. You need not have died. Which or, just, again, feels like you're playing to the cheap seats in the theater. Or to make sure that we understand. That his mom was like a perfect angel saint. Right. So then she, she thought needs that, to pick him up yes. as a boy and twirl and him she around. was like, and you're the most. Oh, you'll be amazing. You're the most perfect boy in the world, Victor. And you'll Mommy never loves you. do an unethical or immoral <laughs> yeah. things as a you'll doctor. You'll never sin against God and nature by bringing someone back to life, will you? Mm. <laughs> Mumsy loves you. I'll still look like this when <laughs> yeah. you are thirty, playing twenty. Yeah, I am going <laughs> to keep it tight. <laughs> she said. Oh um, anyways, so yeah, just just to sort of like briefly go into the source material, which we kind of did here, mm-hmm. just so. Like like we said, the broad strokes of this plot are the same. The same, yeah. There are, there is a little bit of fudging of details. They goose up the action in some places. Right. Uh, like at the end in the book, there is no like big ice splitting. Oh right. my god, we got to run back to the ship. Oh no. Yeah. Uh, we got to save the monster. Maybe that doesn't happen. They also truncate uh, his time out in the wild. They kind of just right. focus it as kind of recurring episodes with that one family that does happen in the book but then there's also another incident where he like saves a drowning girl and someone misunderstands what's happening and shoots him and that's when he decides like I will destroy I people. Yeah, people suck. Uh, again then I this this kind of feels like destined to be an English teacher's favorite adaptation mm-hmm. of Frankenstein because it is fairly referential to the source material and also just mildly exciting enough that you can show to a room full of sixth graders and they'll probably pay attention to I it. I think that some parts in the back half of the movie would be tough in school. Well, Isn't what was the guy also naked? 
I was gonna say like see his dick. I was there is some nudity aspects to yeah. it for sure. But also I, I I don't know like I maybe it would be okay. But like what other that's the thing. I like, saw Bram Stoker's Dracula for the first time in school, but the teacher right. was like, "Don't tell anyone." Which is even more nutso, frankly. Because there's like full boobs. Yeah, I was gonna say there's like full full, full frontal nudity. Also from like there. yeah, like sort of weird, sexy, erotic. Like <laughs> well, and uh, by the way, not to not to keep comparing this to Bram Stoker's, but I, I think do it's kind think, of inevitable. I do think because it's also an epistolatory story being adapted. Right. And they do have the kind of bounce back with letters. I just think it's it's better deployed in Bram Circus Dracula because as we see in Frankenstein, we kind of lead to the action to Elizabeth writing a letter to no to no to nothing. I mean, right. there's nothing she's telling him he needs to know. Right? She's literally like, "Things are status quo at home. Hope you're doing great. Yeah, That's things it. are normal. Miss yep. you." So we kind of have then a sense of where we're starting here with um, the source material and where we're going from with that sort of thing. Having uh, covered the basic tenets of that, why don't we dip into what are the vibes? What's the vibes going on here? Aesthetically, directorially, what are these choices? Here's the thing. (laughs) The music is high melodrama at all times. Yeah, it's constantly at 11. I do not like the score. This is Patrick Doyle, who is Kenneth Branagh's boy when it comes to scoring. He's done, I'm pretty sure for every other Kenneth Branagh movie we've seen, he has been doing the scores for them. This one is like a total miss for me. He, I don't, don't mind it in, does he do much ado? I believe he does do much I ado. don't mind the uh, No, this was, I think like he's done good work yes, before. I think this it. one is just sort of constantly blaring horns, and melodrama, and, yeah. yeah. To the point that you sort of... Kind of overblown, kind of comedic at times play, mm-hmm. and it works there. Yes. Yeah, and I also, I mean, it feels like it's very similar to what, what was it, Dead Again, right? Dead yes. Again, also. Oh my god! It's, it's also another fantastic overbearing score. it's been a while since I'd seen it, but like the the sort of end sequence where they're like fighting over the scissors, yes. Where it's just like so. It's going ballistic. Like it's just right. Similarly, is like dipping into melodrama. Yeah. I think you said this while we were watching it. It's happening so much, so consistently, it just becomes wallpaper. Yeah, you just kind of lose the ability to even like track what you're feeling musically because it's happening so consistently. Yeah, if if you if you keep sounding the 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 air raid siren, I'm just going to stop hearing it eventually. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I think that none of that helps what's going on here in terms of the vibes of the movie, certainly. And it's an odd fit with what I would say is in general um, aesthetically very gray. Very soggy looking. Yeah, it's not um, a very exciting movie visually to cloudy? look at. Like I think the only set that has any sort of personality to it is that main the great hall. room. Yeah, of, the, like the Frankenstein Manor. It's yeah. still not that. I would still describe it as sort of desaturated. Yeah, no, it yes. is. It is. It's very like white and light blue. Yeah. But it's it's it's, it's, it's the I scale. Watch, right. The, the lack of the banister on the grand staircase. Yeah, the enormity That's of a the, hazard. You know, I, I agree. agree. I agree. We but saw I it was a hazard because Elizabeth dives right off the top there. If they had a safety <laughs> railing up there. Maybe she wouldn't have fallen to her death. But they, 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 and it's the only time we see them do things with color, uh, because there's a lot of red yeah. going along the white blue staircase. It's its spareness is so striking in a movie that's otherwise very rococo and it's it's yeah. looks, but it's. Um, and I'm, I'm not trying to say it's like elaborate or anything, but it's just the only thing that just seems to be like a visual choice. Right. I mean, I had someone watching it that it feels very much like a stage set, which it yes. still does to me. It feels, you know, everything feels kind of 
painted in the way that a lot of stage sets would have been at that time period. You just basically have kind of the one visual set piece, which is the enormous staircase, and there's kind of nothing else in this room whatsoever, aside from a fireplace, sometimes a harpsichord or something like that. Even That's about it. There's some steps in an interesting direction when we get into the like the weird machinery. The but, lab is yeah, the lab yeah, the lab I, I do like the nuttiness. In order to make the machine work. <laughs> it has to slide along this overhead oh track, God. bang oh into God. something, well, swing down, be lowered into a pit no, full of amniotic like, fluid. Bladder full of yeah, he's got a bladder of eels. <laughs> eels right. the ceiling. It's constantly kind of throbbing. The eels have to be shoved into like the tank with the human body. And then, and then they just go ham on whatever body. Yeah, and they just, just go fucking nuts. Right. And also there's already electricity, so I don't really know why the eels are needed in the first place. But I don't know, you need them. Who can I say? Kept- the the when you're mentioning the 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 like catwalk rack that he uses, which again, why? Because they only end up getting lowered into a vat that's on ground level with him. Right. So, so why, why not just lower them in? Right. Yeah. Just have a mind track. <laughs> yeah. A mind yeah. Thing. I mean, it, it does just feel very much like the Peter Pan ride at Disneyland or something, where it's yes. like you're flying, you're just hanging from the ceiling, like swinging but through. Yeah. The 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 thing that starts that motion across the ceiling is not like him pulling a chain on a pulley and then it goes. It's like a battering ram is loose. Yeah. He has to <laughs> like, right. He, has, he like knocks and out then, the chuck and the battering ram whacks into the thing. Well, and then it just flies into another battering ram yeah. that's there to catch it. And I kept waiting both times we watched this happen for a body to just. Yeah. I mean, that's probably why they're so banged up whenever they come back to life. If he had had a gentler ride for them, maybe they wouldn't look so shitty when they turn back um, to life. And the whole sequence, I just wanted to comment on the, the way that that sequence plays out the first time where he's like in the robe that they throws off the robe. Oh my god, yes. He, okay. He like, <sighs> Insane. He's like backwards, sort of like moonwalk dance. Right, he's like he's like running along with the body as it's coming. And he's like, he's like, I need up with this. The camera needs to see these pecs. Yeah. They need to see these abs that I am positive. Someone went in with bronzer and was like, let's give that some I think more they probably popped. They gave a little pop. pop yeah. yeah. Kenneth Branagh is clearly very proud of his upper body in this movie which, because he spends a lot of time without a shirt, which is fine. I'm not going to knock it. You know what? And if, if Kenneth Branagh is someone's thing, I'm not. I'm, go with God. But yeah. And I'm not saying he's a bad looking guy. He's handsome. His body looks great. I am not attracted to Kenneth Branagh, so it felt like it was a lot of times his shirt came off because I was like, mm. <laughs> still not doing much for me, Kenny. Yeah, I, I had said earlier how like the entire shirtless thing feels like it was reverse engineered to explain like because Ian Holm is shirtless whenever. <laughs> His yeah. wife is giving birth in the beginning, so it feels like he came up with the idea in that scene so that he could be shirtless later on, and it's like, ah, it's like a mirror image of, like, both of us giving birth to a creature, and it's just like, eh, okay. Yeah. Whatever excuse you need to make well, to justify you being shirtless. They should have given Ian Holm abs. Yeah, that would have been pretty great, actually. Or at least if they would drew you, them. Would you go for beefcake Ian Holm? <laughs> if they drew, like, a little <laughs> little six-pack on him with bronzer, that would have been cute. We're squarely not a loose boy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the camera, the camera motions in this movie, someone just needs to, like, nail this camera to the floor so that Kenny Branagh can't keep spinning this. He loved this idea of a circular camera movement, and we wouldn't always complete the circle, but sometimes instead of moving around them in a circle, it would just be a slow, consistent push in and it it had the effect of making it feel like the camera was misaimed because the shot composition did a lot of kind of like cut off of like the tour and maybe that was intentional maybe they're trying to be like ooh the camera is 
butchering the scene just like the the bodies were butchered i mean that's an interesting take i don't i don't think it was at all like what they thought but that's an interesting it doesn't feel graceful and it it feels like um someone's playing pokemon snap and isn't isn't isn't, isn't trying to to watch pikachu eat an apple professor oak is upset (laughs) (laughs) it disappoints robert de niro to show his butt on camera um do you want do you talk about that shot with the cabin with a the cabin yeah where he looks in the the, where can oh yeah yeah has to depict Looking inside the cabin. Right, right, where the monster where the monster returns. It's the 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 family who he has kind of been sort of like living with without them knowing. And they he leaves for a brief period, the monster comes back and they've all left. They show him like looking his face in the doorway, and he's looking up and down. And to indicate this from his point of view, the camera is pivoting left and right, up and down throughout the scene to show like, yeah. yes, this is what the monster is doing. I, the I monster is looking. You. It's like I POV. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it just it feels like like Kenneth Brown did not trust you to realize that this is from the monster's perspective or something. No. I feel like that's kind of been the recurring thread with a lot of the Kenneth Branagh movies we've seen this year. Where it's not just a lot of like, trust in his audience. No, and it's also just that like he fucking loves moving his camera. Well, it's, it's that it's like yeah, it's he's, he he feels like everything needs to be quote unquote interesting. Yeah, he loves his like visual trickery. So like again, when you look back on Murder at the Orient Express, you have all those scenes shot through windows mm-hmm. with like the beveled glass and, and all that sort of crap. What I find frustrating about that is I think many of these moves would play better or have more impact if it wasn't so constant. Mm. Yeah. I think if we just had some quieter camera stylings, it would make those moments where it is more active feel more effective. See, I would almost argue that, like, we do have quiet... There are moments where the camera doesn't move all that much, and then, like, to me, it's even more ludicrous that you cut to, like, Kenneth Branagh and Tom Hulse over John Cleese's dead, bloody body. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, we're as they're both talking, like, we, we, we focus bo- on Kenneth Branagh, and he's like, come back to life, John Cleese! And Tom Hulse is like... He's not coming back. We pan over to Tom Hulse like next to him. And then Kenneth Branagh's like, no, he's gone. So we pan back over to Tom Hulse. And then we start pulling back from above as we see John Cleese with like gaping wounds, bleeding all over the floor. And Kenneth Branagh's like, why did you die? What did, what does he scream? This need not have happened. Yes. yes. Fucking loves I just, shouting the shit. What a crazy thing to shout over someone's dead body. It's everything in the movie. Everything in this movie is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> there, there, there's a lot of, again, like I said, this movie is amped up to 11 in a lot of respects. I mean, I know, I know this is sort of like a gothic melodrama. And so like in gothic melodramas, there is a lot of like people renting their there's shirts drama. and screaming to God in the heavens being like, why did such a thing happen? But it's like my vague recollection of Frankenstein is that it's, it's a very talky philosophical book in a lot of respects and so this bombast feels kind of entirely at odds with what you might think is going into this I can never think of examples why I need to but like I've seen melodrama done well in a way that has like moved me like where I've been able to like lean into it and be like yes I feel this but you can do like no you can do like heightened big things and they work it's not like we're not saying that like you can't be over the top right but it just feels like there is just something about this and maybe it's the screenplay feels a little bit more grounded than what he's doing visually maybe it's just that the source material doesn't play well with what the vibes were that he was going I for this movie I think is straight up bad yeah, no, you know, I, I agree I think that this this is not a great script terrible. there's no way to deliver this need not happen especially in that if moment. you're shouting it and right. have it sound good or effective or natural or yeah natural or... I mean this more than most feels similar to someone who has never directed a movie but has directed stage productions <laughs> yeah. Coming in and being like, oh, okay, I know how to direct a play, ergo I can direct a movie. So I know this is going to sound crazy given how, for me, this movie feels, takes a lifetime 
to complete. Like, it's it's two-ish hours, but it feels longer. Yeah. So this is going to sound crazy now that I just said that for me to say, it feels like we've rushed through so many things in this movie before they can really land or have resonance. It is split second from, oh, we found Janine, and now she's hung. Uh, or um, uh, Justine. Justine. Yeah. Um, the only the only sequence or the only section of this movie that works for me, where like the tone comes together, the performances come together, the look comes together, is when Frankenstein is hiding out near that family's cabin, and has that interaction with them. Right. Yeah. The creature. Sorry. The creature yeah. is. Yeah. He helps them like get their crops. He helps them get right. firewood. It's like yeah. Well, that the movie stops its bolt. I was gonna say yeah. It almost like minutes. that because those scenes are by and large directed with like a level of subtlety that the rest yeah. of the movie is not. And he's there's just no, watching them have life. Yeah. Right? There's no crazy ass score. Right. It's it's very low key. It's like a lot of simple like you know when you have like the part where the family's like oh we don't have enough crops we'll never make it, it through is. the winter and then like the next shot is they wake up in the morning and the monster has pulled up all these potatoes that they were having trouble getting out of the ground and like laid them out for them and it's like oh that's it, a sweet little moment it is almost like Kenneth Roddick forgot to direct <laughs> maybe he yeah. did it that segment maybe he like stepped off set for a couple of days <laughs> and then they were like, like oh, no, we got it we got it I was like well I don't know how to act so yeah I'm just, just pop the camera down like, I'll, do, I'll do your heavy lifting and they, they just like collaborated this tone together somehow <laughs> yeah Kenneth Roddick showed up on the day when they did the POV shot of the monster looking inside the cabin around yes. and it's like it's like okay at least I got to put my fingerprints here a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's the only part that had resonance for me. So, like, what would you say, I guess, in terms of, like, acting and characters? I guess we have to start from uh, Victor, I guess. Victor? Kenneth Branagh, his um, performance. I, I mean, they're I'm doing not... a form of acting. Yeah. <laughs> and they're doing a lot of... There are choices being made. And they are... They're acting a lot. I think he's bad in this. I don't yeah. think that he's bad. I think that it's, like, the way that he is acting is bad. The way that he directed yeah. himself. Yeah. Yes, I know, yes. <laughs> Kenneth Branagh, the director, should have talked to Kenneth Branagh, the actor, yeah. and made him do better. Um, well, I think Kenneth Branagh, the actor, should have talked to Kenneth Branagh, the director. This is not working. <laughs> we're, we're, we're at odds with each other here, yeah. guys. I, I don't know. He just never worked for me in this role. And I'm not trying to say he was miscast. I think on paper, Kenneth Branagh playing Dr. Frankenstein, fine, whatever. But I don't believe any of his relationships. I mean, the motivation, I guess, is a writing problem, but... A lot, he seems largely unmotivated. I, kind of, he, I don't think cover he... writing here, right? This is yeah. writing. It's acting characters. Right? Yeah, we'll co- yeah. I think I think we can say that the the characters are, are not good. No, yeah, yeah. Sure. No, I think like that's definitely. Something but I th- I would put a lot of it. I blame a lot of the character work being bad on the direction and the writing. Yes. Yeah. And less of it on the acting. Yeah. I know that these people can act. Right. right. We've, yes, we've established that these are yes. some very good actors. These are people that know how to act. They're not doing... Nothing is working for me. Like, Helena Bonham Carter, Branagh, they're not doing anything for me. They also, for a couple that we're supposed to care about, have... No. And again, for a couple... is that guy, Tom, what's his nuts? Yeah, Tom Hulse. He works. Who, like, feels aggressively into Victor Frankenstein. Like, that is the romance that I am getting in this movie. Which, But again, like, the thing I was saying, like, it is nuts that Kenneth Branagh and Helena Bonham Carter were having an affair during this movie. And, like, none of that comes through on screen. These are two people who are actually kind of vibing with each other. And then, like, you see them on here and you're just like... This feels like a brother and sister getting married well, because they have no sexual chemistry with well, each other. Well, and I think we do need to address that. I think a major stumbling block that I think if you're adapting this movie, you just need to not have this in there. Yeah. Is that even though Elizabeth is not related to him by blood, she is adopted as a child. And we are there for a scene in which he's told to think of her and treat her right. as a sister. And then as adults, they refer to each other as sister and brother. Right. And they refer to the same people as their parents. Right. 
that for me was a major yeah, so way in the way for me, like also wanting like, to see them together. Such an easy fix where you just don't, don't have do to it. say that, and she just refers to him as Doctor Frankenstein, right. or or by his first name, or something. Like right. she doesn't need to call him father. Like you can fall in love with someone whom you've known your entire life that is not related to you. That's perfectly fine. When they keep referring to each other as sister and being yeah, like, literally before they're having sex, she's like formerly brother and sister and he's like now husband and wife like ew, ew. don't say that when my penis is getting erect or, because it's not going to get erect anymore <laughs> or, or, um, yeah maybe that's what he needed to get it erect there's, there's a lot of dialogue and in their letters about like oh i love you i'm thinking of your breasts oh i can't i can't live without you i don't, don't write that down in the letters by the way people could read the letters. <laughs> you don't know i guess it was a different time and like you just take that risk you mean when she's like reading the letter out loud and then she's like p.s elizabeth you got great tits and she's like, well <laughs> And then, like, the little eight-year-old is like, oh, what, what else did he write? And like, take the letter, and she's like, no, 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 But, yeah, I think both Kenny B and Helena Bonham Carter are shackled to characters that suck. I, I would also say, just real quick, kind of briefly dipping on the writing and the character of Frankenstein, it feels like this movie kind of goes out of its way to... Forgive. Yeah, yeah. To like, like to make, just make it not his to, fault. Right, to, like, aggressively make it not his fault. Because, like, in the book, we had talked about the fact he creates the monster, wanders out of his apartment, be like, what did I do? What did I do? Comes back and sees the monster is gone and is like, well, that's taken care of. It's Whereas, not, it's, right. Though. Whereas in this one, the monster, the creation, like, accidentally gets chained up and dragged to the ceiling and he thinks it's dead. And so, like, I guess that's his excuse for not doing anything further. I think, well, and then they have the monster chase him around when they're both awake. Right. And then Victor goes to get an axe and the monster splits. Right. Yeah. So it's like, Sure, he was presumably going to use that axe to kill the monster, but only because the monster tried to attack him. Right. So then we're supposed to feel like, oh, well, maybe the monster shouldn't have attacked him, which is a little bit victim blaming. Right. No, so much of this feels like it's an attempt to not make Victor seem the villain that he kind of is. Because Kenneth Branagh is the director right. and the leading man, and he must be playing the hero. Well, see, I don't even know this because wasn't uh, he in like Henry the the fifth? And like Henry the fifth isn't really like a hero I character. I, yeah, I don't think that that's really it. I, I, I think that that's not. I, I think that it's more a failed attempt at Kenneth Branagh, whoever wrote this movie, perhaps Frank Darabont. To and Steph Lee. And Steph Lee. To craft a more like forgiving narrative. Or yes. To craft the narrative. I think where that's we it. Understand him more. Right. But we don't. We no. I, I think it, yeah. There's a lot of like bad attempts to explain Victor Frankenstein that don't quite work in this movie. Helena Bonham Carter, like we said, not a whole lot to say. Nope. She doesn't really pop until she comes back as the bride. Like that's the first time she kind of gets to do well, anything. Then she's like doing weird stuff, yeah. which really works for me. And a lot of that is the prosthetics, and I actually do think it's effectively gross. That is really when she gets to, like, perform. Otherwise, it's just a lot of, like, oh, Victor. Yeah, like, oh, yes, I love you so much. Promise Victor. me that. Yes. yes, come back, Victor. I There's love like you. three different scenes I mean, of being, like, you're not gonna marry me. I'm leaving. Right, that's, like, so fucking slow. We have to keep doing the same dance back and forth where she's, like, we're never going to get married. I'm going to leave. And Victor's, like, no, I will marry you. And she's, like, okay. Okay. Fine. I guess we will get married. And it's just, like, I'm so fucking bored with you guys. You're, like, basic bitch antics. Tom Hulse is Lee's new boyfriend. Tom Hulse. What a little sweetie. Again, like, if this if this were played more with the idea that Tom Hulse was, like, the third in their relationship, frankly, I'd be there for it. I mean, there is a scene where I know it's supposed to be, like, and we're gonna be doctors together right. or whatever. 
Um, it does feel like you know, we're inviting you into this throuple. <laughs> right, like no, he's like like come come back to my house oh, and live all, with me there. They're all like they're all like he said yes, you said yes. Right, yes. like him and Elizabeth they're are like dancing around, be like yay, 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 you're gonna share me. <laughs> yes, which honestly would have made this such a more interesting movie if you wanted to play up this vaguely homosexual angle between the two of them. It would be something. Yeah. I mean, it's not not there, but it's more on Tom Hulse's side. Than yeah, I, I agree. It's more like what he's giving you rather than what. Uh, Kenneth Branagh is getting. I mean, uh, he's basically there just to be like the morality pet. Yeah. Be, like, Victor, why are you doing this? Victor, remember God, remember your soul. Right. But then he like kind of just disappears at the end. Like yeah. the last yeah. you see of him is sitting on the stairs as he's bringing, as Frankenstein is bringing Elizabeth back to life. And he's just like, no. And then you don't even see him like in the house as they're leaving. I think we're meant to believe he just, he dipped. He's like, I'm, I'm I guess scared. so. Yeah. I guess he just got out. But he, like. He dies in the book, right? Yeah. 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 The monster kills him, I think, in the yeah. book was mm-hmm. what I'd read. Yeah. I guess the last one to really cover here, because so the, so many of the other performances are so minor, is De Niro as the creation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We were saying this during the movie. I think he's miscast, but I still think he does a good job. Yeah. Yeah. I think he does good acting. I think that like sometimes his voice fails him. Yeah, yes. no, there are times where it's just, it's just Robert De Niro. Yeah. Like, he's not doing any sort of heightened accent but or that, tones. One of the most compelling scenes in the movie for me is when they're in that, like, ice cave. Yeah. And that whole sort of, like, uh, tete-a-tete sort of confrontation yeah. where he's like, you know, where did, like, the... I know how to play the flute. Where did that knowledge come right. from? Right. Yeah. Where? What are the people? I mean, I, and again, I think that's one of the better scenes in the movie. And it yeah. feels like again, like again, these quiet. right, it's these quiet. right, these quieter talking scenes. Yeah, are the ones that work best. And yeah, because yeah, I agree with you that like that's moving and interesting to Ooh. think about. And then we're immediately back to like bombast and bringing because, Justine back to life. And because bullshit. we're reaching for like bigger themes in those moments. Right. Right. When he's hanging out secretly with that family, it's about like yearning for normalcy and community and wanting to be a part of something. And then in that, it's sort of about like, am I my brain? Am I my heart? Those are all really resonant questions. Yeah, it's so much more interesting than just the melodrama that we get outside of that. I just love the way that Robert De Niro plays the, the, the creation beginning to speak. I looked um, online. Apparently, he said he studied stroke victims to see like what that's it was like. Fucking brilliant, yeah. honestly. And you can, I think, I feel like you could see that preparation because there's a lot of like forming the words, uh, sounds kind of without sound, and then you're like almost there. A lot of like wet lip sounds, which I thought were appropriate. I don't know. He did a good job. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, again, just sort of dipping back to the miscast concept of it all. I do feel like he doesn't really resemble what I would imagine this creature to look like. I mean. All we really know about him from the, like, the, we were talking earlier on the book that, like, when Victor is assembling the creature, he's like, well, he was supposed to be attractive, and then somehow that yeah. didn't work out. It's like, which, what were you, like, in the book, it's like, how does that play? I have to know how that right. plays out, because how do you not look at it when you're building it and going, Right, no, that's such a weird thing. They're like, like, I'm going to close my eyes. Yeah, you're, you're <laughs> assembling this part, and you're like, yeah, yeah, he's attractive. Then he comes to life, and you're like, oh, no, this yeah. didn't work at all. Which, like, I think is a really interesting sort of take on the creature that I would like to see, because I feel like a lot of the times he's either portrayed as just hideously ugly, mm-hmm. kind of, for the most part. Like, he's just covered in scars and stitches and shit. And there's an element to which people are just more familiar with the old movie. The Boris Karloff Which is, yeah. you know, green, bolts in the neck. Right, flat top stitches. head. Yeah, all that sort of crap. Lumbering, can't really talk. While I do find the concept of a more beautiful creation really interesting, I do wonder how you'd get there. Yeah, like Just uh, like, stitching bodies together, let alone to, no, I mean, to, to Lee's logistical question, how'd you get to eight feet? Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that, that again. Eight feet, people are only seven feet at right. best. Right. So did you just like. <laughs> at best. At and, that, and that's a yeah, rare one. Best. Did you like just repeat something like two parts of like thighs? You like 
you grafted two like femurs together yeah, or something. Like, there, there's there's a lot of uh, have a super femur. <laughs> unanswered questions that the book posits that we've never really dealt with before. But yeah, I, I think that would always kind of be an interesting take on the monster, which I feel like I've never really seen before. But so like that's kind of what I wanted from this movie. And you know, again, to be clear, I think De Niro does a good job, but it's not really what I would have wanted for this. I just kind of want to give a minor shout out to John Cleese, not for who he is today. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I like just... his, I like his beliefs. I like everything he says. <laughs> I think that woke culture is ruining movies. You could never make a movie like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in in this current I, climate. I like yeah. his performance, and I did not realize it was him for a pretty like a good bit. Yeah, he, he his wig does a lot of the acting. And I so think to be his clear. Yeah, his wig and his yeah. fake teeth <laughs> do a lot of the heavy work here. Um, yeah. All right, so I think we've covered pretty much everything about this movie that we wanted to go into. So I think it's time that we move on to. Fix number 100. Oh, crazy. Who wants That's to start? I can start. Okay, go ahead. That's cool. I, I, I love this story a lot, but like I was saying earlier, I feel like there's no point in approaching it unless you're coming in with like a new angle, or at least just an angle, right? I also kind of felt like there were gay vibes between uh, Victor and Tom Hulse. I'm sorry, Kenneth Branagh and Tom Hulse. <laughs> <laughs> no, just Tom Hulse really seemed into Victor Frank. Really into Here's, the character. Very strange choice. Um, so what I want to have this be is I want it to be that, yeah, sure, like Victor has this, you know, gal at home or whatever, but he, I want the movie to be a lot about how he is going on this, like, you know, journey of medical and scientific discovery with his, like, best pal and lab assistant, Tom Hulse. And it just goes to a more romantic place. And, but eventually Tom Hulse dies. Frankenstein either... has two daddies. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think Tom Hulse is gonna be our is gonna be our monster. Oh no! Um, because I'm gonna have I want him to die during the cholera uh, epidemic, mm. and then Elizabeth is there to see who like her fiance raising this guy up, and I think there's a lot of interesting drama to be played of like, hey, I thought we were getting married, but you just <laughs> that's your boyfriend. I find you, yeah, I find you do experiments on um, your boyfriend. I know this is this is going into real left field territory. But I legitimately do want this to eventually be like, and then we just we worked out a throuple between the three of us. Between <laughs> like the monster, because um, I think <laughs> it feels so like young Frankenstein at the yeah, end right? of the con. I was thinking about that a bit, um, <laughs> but mostly like uh, a lot of the the things I was thinking about was how I would approach it more visually, uh, just because I felt like there was a lot of space to spread out in that way. So I would want I want to do like have it be in in, in color, yes, but I want to do more high contrast I almost want to do like a German expressionism kind of thing the staircase was a really big point of reference for me I want to do more like theatrical looking seti places like that just because I thought that gave some height some 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 interest some style but yeah that's that's my fix in a nutshell uh make it gay and just make it look better <laughs> uh Lee do you want to go or shall I um, I can go. Okay. It's going to be a weird one. Yeah, that's um, fine. Is this, gonna be a, is this allowed? I'm going to do a cross-licensed uh, adaptation. <laughs> I mean, you might have to, like, struggle to get the rights to it, but we'll do it. Yeah, <laughs> so, because I, I, we've talked about this before we recorded, and I, probably during the recording as well, about how much I love robots uh, gaining sentience and things mm-hmm. like that, and, like, ro- like struggling. So, like, like, yeah, like, artificial life and their place amongst humanity, essentially. Mm-hmm. So there's also, in this D&D world, Eberron, it's more like an industrial fantasy world. There's mm-hmm. a big war that's been going on for 100 years, and there are these race of people called Warforged that are basically like 
fantasy robots that... But they have souls. Like They have souls, but they didn't always have souls. So they used to just be, like, automatons. Uh-huh. And it was, like, one uh, person in the, like, alchemist guild who figured out, like, how to infuse them with life, but he did it and was like, I... Because uh, like, they, 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 they just perform better when they have mm-hmm. a, a, you know, an intelligence of their own. They perform, they're better, better soldiers. Um, but this person in the, the Kenneth family like, did it, and in the War of Eberron, this is pre-established, was like... I don't want, now so, I, sort I don't of like a this. cross between uh, Frankenstein and Oppenheimer? Kind of, yeah, where it's like, I've, well, I've created life. Frankenheimer? I think that, that is... <laughs> I think that, that is cool unto itself, but I don't like what 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 I be, what I've done is now damned this new life to a life of eternal war, mm-hmm. basically because they're just going to be used for war, and so he tries to like not to, to like hold that secret and like not make sure that no one else gets their hands on it, um, and his dad basically like excoriates him from the family, which is like the, the term to like ban someone from this like excommunicate excommunicate mm-hmm. them, and he sort of vanishes in mysteriously. So, in my head, I always wanted, like, they, they don't ever say in, like, the Eberron lore, it's left up to, like, whoever's running the game to be like, who are War for? Like, how do they have souls? I don't know. Where's, where's like, where does their soul come from when they, like, are, there's, like, a thing called a forge that you make them on. Like, where does it come from? In the current era that you play the game, and it's usually after the war has ended, and the creation of new Warforged is banned. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is this, like, mythical figure known as the Lord of Blades, who is, like, living in this basically, like, magical, nuked country that no one is... You can't go in. It's, like, magical fallout. It's irradiated. It's, it's like, like, magical, magical radiation. Yeah, but Warforged are fine there, because they're not human. They're not, they're not organic. The war, the Lord of Blades is, like, allegedly kind of like a Frankenstein's monster-esque. Like, he's just this, like, really angry... Like, he allegedly is gathering an army of other Warforged to, like, maybe take over. Maybe, like, nobody knows. It's mm-hmm. kind of like a boogeyman. It's like, who is this figure? Is he real? Is he not real? Some more forwards revere him as like a god, but in general, it's judges agreed upon that he hates you know sapient kind for like making him exist mm-hmm. and doing whatever they did to like all the other warforged. I wanted to explore this idea like where did the souls come from? You know what's the deal with that? And I had this idea that the person who figured out this technology, the sun, basically like found maybe like journals or like something from like another even more ancient civilization, like somewhere else in like ruins. Basically, like, the, the long and the short of it is rather than have it be, like, because it's Warforged and they're made of magical metal and wood fused together versus, like, body parts, mm-hmm. the soul, it, it's not about, like, stitching body parts together. It's about, like, this sort of magical site that he goes to where he finds this technology is where this technology was created and, like, misappropriated and caused this whole area to be fucked up to basically, like, harvest souls in such a way that, like, it was meant to store them as, like, discrete beings, but what it really does is sort of, like, sort of tear souls apart into, like, disparate energies and and emotions and things. And when Warforged are created, basically, like, it's since then, it's basically been sort of pulling energy from this place into a body. Like, basically, after the son was excommunicated, the father, like, he maybe he tried to go stop, like, he tried to stop this from getting out and got killed in the process, and the father didn't, like, he didn't want the son to die, and so he spent a lot of time trying to, like, bring his son back as a Warforged, but it involved trying to not just get, like, random bits of soul, but trying to get as much of, like, his son's soul as possible. All he ended up getting was just, like, the anger and the rage. <laughs> he didn't get any of the good bits. So he just sort of created this, like, horrific 
for each of a thousand beings in one person. So yeah, that was kind of a, I don't really have, I guess this isn't really much of a narrative so much as I just liked this this lore. But I liked that that concept of like a homunculus, not of like bodies, but of like spirits. Like of the that's idea cool. that like you're, some people's souls have been just like kind of fucked up by some calamity that's so disastrous. You know, they're sort of lost to oblivion. D&D yeah. Frankenstein. D&D Frankenstein. <laughs> That's what I got. Okay, so what I have is, um, first of all, much like Chris said, this needs a stronger visual style. There needs to be something going on here. Like I kind of said the idea that maybe the challenge should be to do this entirely on sound stages and not do any uh, location shooting whatsoever, which I think... To be fair, the Swiss Alps look beautiful. Go figure. Yeah. <laughs> I think it would at least be something if you tried to sort of recreate... Uh, sets on the soundstage and sort of lend your own visual sense to it. So maybe in that respect, Kenneth Branagh is not the director for this because he doesn't really have a strong visual sense in the way that some other ones do. The other thing I had kind of thought was when I was looking online about this movie and about Coppola's relationship to it, is he had said when he was watching an early cut or a mostly finished cut that Branagh needed to cut a half hour from the beginning of the movie. And that is correct. he's not wrong. I think he's not entirely wrong here. And so that kind of got me thinking that maybe the way this story should go instead is that this story should be entirely from the monster's perspective. And so maybe it starts effectively with, like, the monster kind of waking up. Like, maybe you have some sort of, like, you know, voiceover prologue or something from the monster in present day, or there's a flashback or some shit, who cares? But I think if it starts with the monster kind of waking up, I think it would lend an interesting point of view to it. I know that there are other movies that have been focused predominantly on the monster versus the scientist, but I think kind of the way to do it is to sort of deal with the monster as this like child who just kind of woke right. up is like, oh, hey, like, hey, dad. And he's like, me like, oh, no thanks, and runs away. Yeah. And so like, I, I think like an exploration of the monster psyche would be more interesting than what this movie tries to do, which is kind of explain Victor Frankenstein's like mental state, which is kind of less interesting, I think, to mm-hmm. me. And I know that Mary Shelley was kind of more focused on Victor Frankenstein. Like her entire thought was, what if you make life and you think it's horrible? And then what do you do then at that case? But I think ironically, she kind of made the monster be a more interesting sort of character. So I think contrary-wise, what you have to do with Victor Frankenstein is you have to make him more of an outright villain than this sort of conflicted character that he ends up being in the movie. What I had said kind of before is I like a lot of what Penny Dreadful does with Mm -hmm. Frankenstein's monster and Frankenstein in that where you spend a lot of time getting to know kind of what the monster has been through and who has been nice to the monster and, you know, what has the monster learned about humanity and philosophy and all these sorts of things. So I kind of think that if you're focusing more on the antagonistic relationship from the monster's perspective, you at least have something that I don't think has really been done in this sense before. And especially if you want to keep it as a period piece, which I feel like a lot of like the shitty modern day Frankenstein movies are like, they're like, what, Urban if, Frankenstein. what if Frankenstein but today? And it's like, I don't yeah. care about that at all. Like at the very least, just make it a period piece or some shit. So you add some sort of gothic tension to it. I think it would also help again, if this movie was a little bit scarier than it ends up being, because this as you know, we can quibble about whether the source material is a science fiction novel or a horror novel or like, or yeah, or both or like a gothic romance or something, but like it needs to be just a little bit more scary, which this movie is never at any point at all scary. It's gross. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of squelching. Yeah. Um, but I, I think kind of that that's what this needs. Again, I think just, you have a director who has a sense of visual style and a perspective, this movie would have turned out a lot more interesting than it did. So that's what I want. I agree. Yeah. So I guess then my final question for both of you is, need this movie have happened? (laughs) Um, Need this have happened? I'm gonna gonna say no. 
Um, yeah, I agree. I, I I would find this I find this to be a difficult movie to recommend. Yeah, it's not fun. Right, you're not rewarded for giving it your attention. Yeah, I think like the most it has going for it is more or less fidelity to the source material, and that's kind of about it. Right, you know, you can't look at the comparison with Bram Stoker's Dracula and be like, well, it's certainly a swinging high and has a really neat visual style that you've never seen before because here it's just kind of like, well, this is exactly what you think it would be. It's kind of Pranak directing Frankenstein. And it's just, it's a period piece that's also Frankenstein, basically. And I don't think that's interesting. I think you need to commit more to the Frankenstein part of things. It's kind of dull. So there's not really a whole lot that I would ever really recommend about this movie. I'm glad we did it because this is one we've kind of kicked around for a couple of Mm -hmm. years and we just never quite worked our way up to it. I mean... Now it's here, baby. Would I have rather seen this than Vamps? Probably. Ooh, I don't know. I think I had more fun with Vamps. I fucking hate Vamps. I mean, I didn't like it either, but... Anyways, Mm -hmm. so guys... Here's to 100 more episodes. Ah, yeah. We're not doing 100 more episodes. All right. Well, happy Halloween, everyone. Hope it was spectacular or will be spectacular since it's coming up before Halloween. We'll be back in two weeks with a mini episode. Mm-hmm. Till then. Bye. bye.